The only promise in the 12 steps is contained in step 12. It promises that if we work these steps, that we will have a spiritual awakening. Then it asks us to carry the message and practice the principles of recovery in all our affairs. Welcome to episode 392 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Kate, Jean, Diana, Bill, Mary, Eric, and Tenna. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Kate, Jean, Diana, Bill, Mary, Eric, and Tenna, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that, in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Joining me today is Esther. Welcome back to The Recovery Show, Esther. Thank you. Great to be back. You brought us a couple of readings to start with? Yeah, I did. This is a reading from what is currently my favorite reader that I'm really enjoying getting a lot out of at the moment called One Day at a Time, or as we sometimes call it in the program, ODAT. It's from June 26. The final triumphant statement of spirituality, which is announced in step 12, can come to every one of us as we live the Al-Anon way. And the quote is, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. The spiritual awakening is a realization that we are not alone and helpless. We have learned certain truths, which we are now able to carry to others in order to help them. And the today's reminder is, I will keep myself ready for the spiritual awakening, which is certain to come to me when I have surrendered my will to God's will. It will throw new light on many things. It will give me the ability to make my judgments and decisions on the spiritual level, where I will be governed by God's goodness and wisdom. And another quote, we are asleep, we walk in darkness until we find God's hand to lead us into his way, the way of spiritual enlightenment. Both those readings really touch on the spiritual awakening part of the step. The step really comes in three parts, right? It does come in three parts. And uh, I thought that maybe we could split up today's discussion in terms of those three parts. So the first part being, as you say, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And then the second part being, we tried to carry this message to others And the third part being to practice these principles in all our affairs. So I thought it might be a nice way to talk about those three elements. And of course, as with all of these, there's overlaps between them and it's not a kind of neat and tidy line, but I find it quite helpful to think about them in three segments. Yeah. When it comes to the spiritual awakening part, I really love that today's reminder because we actually hear it in our closing to one of our our steps and traditions meetings that I attend regularly. And I didn't realize until I had read this page from one day at a time that it came from this book. I just thought it was a really beautiful closing that someone had come up with, but of course it's actually from Cal. And this idea of being asleep and walking in darkness until we find God's hand to lead us, it really speaks to me because one of the things that I said to my sponsor at the end of working the 12 steps with her was, and not even fully realizing that I was talking about the spiritual awakening, I think I said to her, I feel more awake. I feel more awake. 
something happened between starting step one and finishing step 12 and it changed me. And the best way I could describe it was that I feel more awake. One of the biggest parts of that transformation happened toward the end of that process where I really started to notice it. And that spiritual awakening was something that I finally understood in a more real sense what the program talks about when it's talking about a spiritual awakening. How about you? How about me? I worked the steps the first time with a group, and we worked out of the book Paths to Recovery. And that book has questions for each of the steps to help me understand what it means to work that step. And the questions actually are headed by the phrase, working the step. I guess the implication is if I can answer these questions, then maybe I've worked the step to the best of my ability at that time. I pulled out my notes from that time. And the first question says, have I experienced a spiritual awakening? Describe. So right there, it makes me stop. And like, have I? Because for me, I didn't have a white light experience or anything. It was no big aha moment for me. There were lots of little aha moments, I'm sure, along the way. I think about awakening. Think about just waking up in the morning. I know that sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I'm asleep and then boom, I'm awake probably because something is happening and I have to be awake for it. Oh my God, did I sleep through my alarm? There are also those days when I can't really say to myself where that transition from asleep to awake happened. That's what this awakening in Al-Anon was like for me. So I was really grateful for the question because the question made me look back. I pulled out the book that, that I wrote in, and this is about just over two years from when I entered the program. It took us a while to get through all the steps. I think we started in June of 2002, and this is June of 2004. What I realized was and I didn't really write it down that way. I wrote down some details, but what I realized was that the way in which I moved through life had changed. I wrote yes, because you've got a yes-no question there at the beginning, yes, but then you've got the hard one, describe. And I wrote, I now admit a higher power. Sometimes I can feel the presence of my higher power. I have experienced my higher power speaking to me. I am much more able to keep the focus on me and my stuff than I used to be. I recognize that not everything is my business and that I must let others succeed or fail on their own terms and in their own way. I have experienced the joy of letting go. Conversely, I am better able to recognize and ask for my own wants and needs. I no longer need complete consensus before I can do something. I'm sometimes, that's in parenthesis, sometimes able to love my alcoholic for herself without needing to fix her. And then I concluded, in many small ways, I am awakening. So that's pretty cool because 
when I came into the program, like it was my job to fix everybody around me. And now I know it's not. And that gives me time to actually start to attend to my own needs and to express my own needs. And right there, there's some differences in the way in which I live in the world. And then 10 years later, did the steps again. And this one has more of a bullet point list. I have a higher power. I have a spiritual practices. I am more intentional about my actions and relationships. And I have had two awakenings to God as love. And so as I continued to open to spiritual experiences, there were a couple of times when I got this just overwhelming feeling of love coming into me. I did it again and about another eight years later in 2020, and I wrote, in so many ways, my life is very different than it was before the steps. I have new tools and principles by which I live. I approach life in a more open and accepting attitude. I spend time in spiritual pursuit and self-understanding and growth. The way in which I expressed the awakening changed over the years. I had to stop and look back. That's true of so many things in our life, right? Definitely. Watching Mm. children grow up. Oh, wait, you're like twice as tall as you were last year. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you say that. I just saw my godson yesterday for the first time since November. He's one and a half. So two Mm -hmm. months is a lot for that age. And I really noticed a lot of changes. And of course, the parents who are living with him, yeah, sure, they see the changes, but they see them in that sort of incremental day-to-day They watch every moment of the growth in the process, whereas I I get the gap and then I come in and suddenly he has some words that he didn't have. And he's super coordinated physically and I can play ball with him and all of these things that I couldn't do in November. It's just amazing to, to witness that and then to feed that back to the parents as well, because that's quite helpful for them to hear, hear, I think. For me, that's a little analogy there to what you're describing. I loved hearing you say in that first time you did the steps, the way in which I moved through life had changed. Then, And at some point you said, I am awakening, which is like you turned the noun, having had a spiritual awakening into a verb, like you're in the process of awakening. I think that was amazingly perceptive. And then by the time you did it the second time, you said, have had two awakenings. So then you were back into the, I have had awakenings. And then you went to the third time you did the steps and you used the present tense a lot. And this is a continuing process. Absolutely is. What it's about. That's really awesome to hear that. So I didn't have white light experiences per se either, but I did have moments where the way that I dealt with things that I regularly have to deal with changed so significantly that I couldn't not notice because I have to deal with them all the time. Those small changes actually amount to big changes in how I live my life, which is for me, the thing that really keeps me coming back to this program. My life is now better. I live it better. I do it better. But one of the interesting moments for me, for me, like step four and five were, I had lots of realizations about myself and I acquired a lot of awareness, but I didn't necessarily acquire the acceptance yet. I don't know if I would call it a spiritual awakening so much as a spiritual struggle, something. It was very tough. And I did it over two years during the pandemic and the lockdowns, which made it a real slog in many respects, because I was just with myself that entire time reflecting on those things about myself and my behavior and how I was in the world that, frankly, I didn't like and I didn't really want to look at. But I found very important things in that process. And when I got to steps 10 and 11, 
putting it into practice in, in a regular way, I found myself encountering a lot of really intense, almost like bodily resistance. I was calling fellow members to tell them I was considering giving up on the whole thing. I was saying, I need to reason things out with you because I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do a personal inventory every day. I don't know if I can cope with that. That's a big ask in my head. And I was, I suppose I was thinking back to that step four and five slog. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that, that incredibly searching and fearless. And I, I was really thorough. I was really rigorous. I thought, I can't do that every day. That will kill me. But I had these great conversations with members who have the same sponsor as me and so do the same method. And they said, I wouldn't do it if it took me an hour every night, but it takes me 10 minutes. So I do it. Just little things like that really helped me right size it. And they said, all it does is help me reflect on how I was today and how I might be better tomorrow. And Sometimes I answer thoroughly and sometimes I don't, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And it's not a, it's not an excuse to punish myself on a daily basis because that would be an easy thing to fall into. I totally understand what you're feeling. And I, I too was intimidated by it at the beginning, but I just trusted the process and went for it. This is what a few of them said. And now I'm really grateful that I have it. And I thought, okay, okay. So I had these conversations and everybody told me their little tips and techniques for making it more manageable, even with a busy life. Because my thing was, I'm too busy. I don't have time to have another thing in my day. Forget it, you know. And the way that my sponsor said it was, you're going to be doing this every day for the rest of your life. And I was like, rest of my life? I, I mean, the idea of committing to anything to the rest of my life is freaking terrifying to me. That's a way of making me run a mile if you say you're doing this for the rest of your life. And then my 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 lovely fellow members said, yes, you can think about it in this is an everyday for the rest of your life thing, but you can also think of it as this is just one day at a time. And I was like, oh yeah, that old trick, one day at a time. <laughs> yes, I'll do it today. Yeah. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. We'll see. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I am reminded of this paragraph in the big book of AA in how it works right after the steps. It says, many of us exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. And that's yeah. also the paragraph in which at the end they say, we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. And that's a really important message to hear over and over again. <laughs> big time, big time. Yes. And I still need to hear it every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, I, I think for me, the moment of, okay, the process thus far has worked really well for me. Why should I think that just because I don't like what this step makes me think it's going to be, even though I haven't tried it yet, why should I think that I'm right about that? rather than all these people around me who have done this and it's worked for them. Maybe I should just also trust the process and just try. And I don't have to commit to the rest of my life. I can just, like we said, commit to today. So I started the process and what was amazing was, so a friend of mine in the program said it took her a full year to not resent it. She hated it every time she had to do it. And I thought, wow, first of all, kudos that you kept going. But secondly, yowch, I will see how I go if that's the case. But from the beginning of actually doing the process, I was immediately grateful for the process because it made me realize this was almost a shortcut to 
higher power contact on a daily basis for me. It was like, oh, I have these questions I need to answer. It's essentially a check-in. It's like having a little meeting at the end of the day with my higher power. I started doing it and it's actually really made, I think, one of the biggest differences to my daily working, my program, practicing these principles in all my affairs, the last part of step 12. Because I have to do that daily check-in, even if I've forgotten something for 24 hours, I still get a reminder that next time I write the answers to those questions. So I've found it really transformative and also sometimes confronting because I see the repetition of certain behaviors that I have. And then I have to learn to accept them. And then I have to ask to hand them over. So it's this sort of amazing mini version of that tortuous step four experience that I was having, but one that is more manageable because it is smaller. And because I've already done that work, it's there in the background to help inform what I want to do with this information about myself and what my higher power is telling me that is the next right thing. So I I found now that I have that daily check-in that the spiritual awakening is really profound, but it hasn't come in the form of some kind of big epiphany. It's come in the form of on a day-to-day level, my life is so much more manageable. Yeah, exactly. That's why I came here, you know? So I think that's amazing. And didn't say something like that in step one? Lives were unmanageable, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, that for me was what a spiritual awakening in some respects looked like. And I wrote the question here for us as a sort of prompt, did I have expectations about it? I'm not sure I did. If anything, I had expectations that wouldn't happen for me. So for me, the expectation was, this isn't going to work. I'm very skeptical. And maybe that was a good thing because then when it came, I was like, whoa, <laughs> I want to keep doing this. I don't remember... Where I heard it said that this is the only promise in the 12 steps. It doesn't say, and then we tried to have a spiritual awakening. It said, having had a spiritual awakening. The promise there is that by working the steps, by working the program, we will have a spiritual awakening. I can totally understand the skepticism. You know, really? I don't think so. And that's why that first question in the Paths to Recovery on Step 12 was so powerful for me, because it forced me or it encouraged me or it prompted me to discover that, yes, even though I didn't notice it happening, it did happen. If you dig into the literature about the steps, it's clear that, and in fact, the wording in The AA Big Book says, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. So what they're saying really is, we did these things and we had this result. And maybe you can believe that because it worked for us, it will also work for you, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Having had a spiritual awakening, we did this. That's always how the steps are framed, Mm -hmm. isn't it? It's the past tense, it's we, it's the other members of the fellowship, it's passing on our experience, strength, and hope. And obviously, it's up to you if you want to try it, but we're just telling you it worked for us. And I love that it's phrased that way, because the steps are not instructional. Even though, of course, we take them as such. Exactly. Oh, okay. 
got to do these things. And that's not really what it's saying, but we do often interpret it that way. Yes. And I think in many ways I interpret it that way. And I also take my sponsor sharing her experience, strength and hope as instructional because for me, because of how I work, I wouldn't do them without some kind of structure. I do work better when I'm externally accountable in most things in my life, which is for me, one of the biggest reasons why I need a higher power. I, I, I can't trust myself with myself in a lot of instances. I don't know. There were maybe times earlier in my life where my will was the thing that made things happen for me effectively, but that, that hit a wall once I had alcoholism in my life. My will for me now, more than anything else, gets in the way of a good life and of good relationships. And when I've implemented the not necessarily instructional, but for me, instructional steps and traditions, and when I have done it as my sponsor has said that she did it, it has tended to work for me. So that for me is good enough. At the same time, I would never say to another person in the program, you should dot, 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 because I recognize that is unhelpful on many fronts. And when I am told you should dot, dot, dot by somebody else, that is a sure way to make me run the other direction and not want to do those things. You ask here, how did working the steps, going to meetings, reading literature lead to that awakening? I look at that and I'm like, I don't know how. I talked earlier about little awakenings along the way, and I know that working the steps, answering those questions in that book, talking about them with other people in the program. And I have to say that for me, working the steps with a small group where we committed to be together for the period of time it took us to get through the 12 steps was really helpful. And I think important because I didn't get all like inside myself. And I also got to see that other people had the same things going on, had the same character defects when we got through to step four, et cetera. And there's a feedback, a synergy that, that happened for me because when I look at my book, the process that we used was we would each write out answers to typically two or three questions each time we were going to meet. And then as people shared what their answers were, I have marginal notes where somebody said this and I'm like, oh, you know, that, yes, that's a great new way to look at it. Or I hadn't thought of that. Or, yeah, that's so true for me, too. Why didn't I write it down? So I know that working the steps in that way helped me to have those little awakenings more often and probably more quickly. And maybe I got to the eventual awakening faster than I would have if I tried to do it by myself. I think that's what I can say about how did it lead to that awakening. But it is a mystery, really. I mean, it's very clear that if I spend some time looking at myself and looking at my relationship to a power greater than myself, which I had to come to understand, that those things in and of themselves contribute to awakening, right? Definitely. 
Yeah. I like when you said, when I look at myself, because I can talk in these kind of lofty terms and share from the perspective of, I want to share the solution. I want to share hope in meetings. And I want to talk about how I've changed for the better and my life is better. But for the newcomers who come in and hear that, what does that mean? All they're trying to do at that moment is make their life just manageable. So for me, it really helps to think about concrete changes. Me now versus me when I first came into the rooms or even me a year ago versus me when I first came into the rooms, even that little incremental progress. And I think there are two really major changes that people who know me would probably notice, even if they couldn't put their finger on it. I would assume, I don't know, but I notice it. So I guess that's what matters. One is I own up to my part in things much more quickly or full stop. I didn't used to own up to my part in things at all. So now I promptly admit it whether it's an apology or an amends or a living amends, I will take care of that right away because it's right there in front of me and I don't want to carry it anymore. So that's a huge change that I would consider to be part of my spiritual awakening because it lightens my load every day. It makes me in closer contact with a higher power and and it gives me serenity in a real sense. And then the other major change I would say, there there are probably so many more, but this is just me thinking off the top of my head, is that I let go of things a lot more quickly now and a lot more readily and a lot more willingly. Things that would have caused me either worry or resentment or remorse or shame or all of those feelings of I just had an interaction today and it made me uncomfortable for X and Y reasons or I behaved in a way that I am now ashamed of, whatever it might be. Or I don't have contact with this member of my family anymore because they did X and Y. I can put those things to one side and give them to a higher power so I could live my day, (laughs) essentially. And I know that sometimes they're going to come back. I'm not being unrealistic about it. I'm not like that's out the door because for me, that's more denial. And I it could very easily go there if I allowed it to, because that was my default that I've had to unlearn. I've had to look at reality and I've had to accept reality. And then I've take the action to, to make my life better in relation to that reality. So it's not about pretending that thing isn't there. It's about, this is not something I have control over today or now. This is not something that's making my life better today or now. It's not going to change how I feel for the better. So I don't need it right now. Yeah. And in the past, that was a really nice intellectual idea that I had heard in the program lots of times, but I didn't know how to implement it. And now I have tools and techniques and slogans, all these little shortcuts that I can call on at short notice. And I have fellow members who I can reason things out with, which when you talked about your group recovery, that was a really big part of Working the steps for me was sharing and hearing the sharing of other people who had worked the steps the way I worked the steps and were going through the process, journeying along the process with me, even if we weren't doing it as perhaps formally as it sounds like you were. There was something about the camaraderie of sharing those experiences and being validated in those experiences that was extremely important for me. Well, do we want to move on to carrying the message? Yeah, exactly. I'd love to. Which, of course, is something we're doing right now. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. You ask, what is the purpose of trying to carry this message to others? I have one answer, which 
comes from my own personal experience of being the person to whom the message was carried. Before I even came into Al-Anon, people were saying to me, hey, this thing exists. You might find it helpful. We suggest you give it a try. And for several years, I didn't because I didn't think I had a problem or my problem was her, right? But then there was a person who broke through that by telling me that I didn't cause it, that I couldn't cure it, and I couldn't control it. And that person was carrying the message. Then I went to a meeting, and I went to another meeting, and I went to another meeting, and I heard people at those meetings sharing their experience, strength, and hope, sharing their stories. And I started to connect, and I started to see that I didn't have to keep living in that same unmanageability because hey, these other people had done it. So for me, as a recipient, one of the purposes of carrying the message of recovery is, number one, to let me know it's there, because I had no idea. And number two, to show me by example how I might benefit, how I might find some recovery. So that certainly is one of the purposes that I carry the message now because other people carried the message to me. We talk about paying it forward. This is the way that I pay back the people who carried the message to me is by paying it forward to people who are now where I was then. So that's one reason. What do you got? Yeah. I still find this quite challenging because I'm in Al-Anon. And because I have traits that brought me to Al-Anon, which are about control and the desire to help others or my understanding of helping others, which, as I have now learned, was not always helpful. Carrying the message, I suppose, for me, is about some of the really basic things like showing up regularly to meetings, because that's carrying the message, for example, to newcomers. Newcomers have come to the rooms, but they're not necessarily yet convinced they're going to keep coming. And people's first meetings can be really important in terms of that. And also, in a more everyday sense, role modeling through my behavior, it's the attraction, not promotion aspect of the program. That had to come first before I could feel that it was okay for me to mention the program to people who I think could benefit from it or who ask me for advice on something they're struggling with that might be relevant or whatever it might be. But I struggle because there are people in my life and these are the people with whom I'm both closest and have the most difficulty in relationship with who I really do believe at my core could benefit from something like the Al-Anon program or some kind of similar 12-step program, partly because of the way they try to control me. And so what's my role here? Is me carrying the message, taking their inventory? For me, it's a really fine line and I have to really check my motives. I suppose I'm pretty black and white or puritanical about it for my own benefit at this point, which is I don't mention the program unless someone asks me in a fairly direct way for assistance to that effect, because I always go back to thinking about how I would have responded to that if someone tried to do that at a moment where I wasn't ready to hear it. And it probably would have been counterproductive for me. It is really tricky. I don't have 
a clear or maybe particularly wise or hopeful answer to that part yet. And nobody has yet come to me saying, I have an alcoholic in my life, help, in that sort of direct way. So I have not done that. However, there is a group opportunity at the moment where we're having discussions about public information, PI, as it's sometimes known. Mm-hmm. For me, that is a kind of carrying the message. If I do that with the health of a group conscience with other experienced Al-Anon members and in a way that we've all agreed on and that adheres to the traditions and concepts that have been passed on to us, that perhaps is a healthy route for me to carrying the message rather than me using my own will to individually try and get people into the program. So at the moment, that's what it means for me. And my sponsor was very, it was the closest thing I ever got to direct advice from her, although she was still careful not to phrase it as direct advice toward the end of my working the steps with her, which was essentially sponsorship is a huge responsibility and you will know when you're ready, but there is no rush. That was very important for me to hear as a person who's in a sort of helping and service profession. There was a part of me that thought, right, now my job is to go and carry the message by sponsoring a bunch of people, right? That's like the next step. I haven't done that yet because in the moments where I've had the temptation to put my hand up for it, I haven't been directly approached. So at the moment, my thinking is if I'm not directly approached, it's not my time. That might not be true, but for now, that's true for me. And the other thing is that those temptations have come in moments where I'm seeing people in a very desperate and emotional state and my own drives are, oh my God, I want to fix this for this person, like now. (laughs) And just imagine what they could do if I showed them all the wisdom of this program through the steps as I did them. When those drives happen, I now have enough recovery, thankfully, to really pause, to not act on that drive and to question my motives or to ask my higher power if this is actually my higher power's will or if it is my will doing the talking. And thus far, it has always been my will. So I have not acted on it. So I I haven't sponsored yet. It's tricky because I feel some strange kind of guilt that I've hit step 12 and I've been there for a while and I haven't started to sponsor yet and there are all these people around me who are sponsoring and I'm like, imagine if you sponsored someone when you weren't ready for it. That would be so much worse (laughs) for that person and for you. So I thought, okay, just pause. You'll know when you're ready. So I'm so grateful I have a sponsor who can share things like that with me Mm -hmm. about reaching step 12 and not being like, you immediately need to sponsor, go find someone tomorrow. (laughs) You know, That would be bad for me. There are so many other ways that we can carry the message. Sponsoring is obvious and big, but just sharing in a meeting is carrying the message. Like you, I don't anymore, at least, tell people, oh, man, you really should try Elena. The way that it often comes up for me with people who are not in the program is, oh, you do a podcast. What's your podcast about? Ah, yes. It's about 12-step recovery for those of us whose lives have been affected by somebody else's drinking or drugging. And then if they want to ask more, I can say more. And usually that's sufficient. Occasionally, I've had somebody say, oh, Al-Anon. Uh-huh. This is when I'm talking to civilians or whatever the term is, normies, as yeah. I've heard my alcoholic friends put it. But it's there. And 
the context I think is important too. So very early on, my my loved one was in a residential treatment program and we had weekly group sessions. I remember telling some other of the friends and family in those group sessions, like, oh man, I'm going to Elon. It's awesome. You really should try it. You should come to a meeting. I think at that time where I had just a few months in program and in that context, I don't feel bad about doing that. And I don't think that particular person that I was really telling, you know, you really should, you should do this. You really should do this. I don't think they ever did. I don't know because they don't live in the same town, but from when I saw them during the time when both our loved ones were in that program and we were going to the weekly sessions, I don't think they found something that that clicked with them. And that's okay. I don't think I pushed it anymore. I don't do that anymore. And our literature is full of, this is probably not the way to get somebody to really come to Exactly. Yeah. So how do I carry the message? I do sponsor. The meeting that I started in and was my home group for over a decade really emphasized sponsorship. And I think that was good for me because it encouraged me to get a sponsor. I didn't use my sponsor very well, but at least I have one. I have one sponsor who has not made it all the way through the steps. We fell apart when the pandemic happened. We both got busy, et cetera, et cetera, excuse, excuse. But I have done that. And I still get calls occasionally from, I don't know, I don't think I would say previous sponsees, just ones that we made it through the steps. And so our regular meeting together isn't happening anymore. And some I've lost touch with. They moved and don't know where they are now. And they stopped calling me. So I figure it's on the sponsee to to keep contact. It's not on me to bug them. Right. Sponsoring, hopefully helped them, carried the message to them and helped them work their program. I think so in general with the feedback that I get, but it also helps me to strengthen my program. One thing is I'm going through the steps with this person, helping to guide them through the steps. I'm revisiting them myself, right? And then I get a question and I'm like, oh, I don't know. And it's okay to say I don't know, but Maybe I want to find out, like, oh, what is my answer to that question? I recently, and this gets to practicing these principles in all our affairs, which is the next one, I think, to some extent, too. But I was in a meeting of a small group at church, and we were doing some role-playing, having conversations with people that maybe we don't agree with or that they're upset about something, role-playing how to have the conversation to start to understand what they're upset about or how they came to the way that they're thinking. I was in the role of the person trying to understand with another person in the group who was being the person who had the issue. At the end of our little five-minute or so role play, she said to me, wow, you made me think about that in ways that I had never thought about it before. (laughs) And I'm like, I think I know where that came from. It came from practicing these principles with sponsees in particular. The way that I try to work with a sponsee is to not give them answers 
because I always say my answers might not be your answers, but to help lead them maybe to discovering what their own answers are. How else do I carry the message? Well, I share in meetings and, oh, I have a podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> do I share Al-Anon with others outside the program? I don't know who all listens to the podcast. I do know sometimes people write to me and they're like, well, I haven't been to a meeting, but what I hear here really resonates with me. And I'm thinking about maybe going to a meeting someday. That's somebody, I would say that's somebody who's outside the program. I would say so. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, a number of different ways of carrying the message. For sure. I had already attended my first Al-Anon meeting when I first heard your podcast, but I had attended my first six and then I had a big break. And during the big break, I listened to your podcast and it really helped. Every time you gave feedback to listener feedback that said, I would recommend going to a real meeting, I was like, ah, eventually it's okay. And of course, I knew that I needed a kind of interactive face-to-face -face situation where it wasn't just me absorbing what other people were saying and I had an opportunity to share as well. But in the meantime, it was really helpful. And it planted a lot of the understandings of ideas like boundaries and detachment that I hadn't previously been exposed to. So that was, yeah, that was great. And yeah, you are definitely carrying the message <laughs> through this podcast. It's interesting. I was just thinking about the places where I probably have repeated, you were talking about those early times when you were like, you should come to the program. My partner who is the reason why I came into the program originally is really struggling with other members of his family dealing with addiction and mental health stuff. He sees me do Al-Anon and he knows Al-Anon exists and he doesn't go to it, but I think it's very interesting that he seems to absorb by osmosis some of the things that I practice, like detachment with love. And I have spoken about some of these things to him before, at the beginning, when he started to go into that desperate state of he would take calls at four in the morning from people in a different country, updating him about his brother and all of this sort of stuff, like he was really in it. And at the beginning, I was just like, because I was waking up at four in the morning too because of those phone calls. Phone rings. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, do you really need to get these updates at four in the morning? Can't you, you know, read them when you wake up later? And I was, have you thought about maybe going to Al-Anon or something like it? Because like you're being driven insane by your brother's behavior and you can't do anything about it. So you're just in a kind of state of insanity. And I probably said it a few too many times. And when I started to get reactions, I thought, okay, yeah, this is a sign. I'm overstepping my bounds here and just dialed it back. But he knows it exists. It's funny because he's recommended it to his dad. Like <laughs> you're aware of the thing that can help other people, but maybe not yourself, which I recognize. But I thought, what is my role here when he's going through this? So I can listen. And if it gets too much because I'm being burdened by a constant barrage of the stuff, I can also put my own boundaries down and be like, okay, we've talked enough about this now. My sponsor reminded me that it's compassionate and kind of me to listen, but I don't have to do that endlessly just because he's not choosing to go and get help elsewhere. I still have to take care of myself. So yes, I appreciate that I've been where he is in terms of trying to control things that are not controllable and just being very anxious and hypervigilant and wanting updates from everybody about every micro detail of the situation. I've definitely been there. I recognize it. I know it. But it doesn't mean I'm the exclusive place that he comes to to offload that stress. So that was an important lesson for me. But at the same time, that 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 shouldn't then turn into, then I get resentful and say, why don't you go to Al-Anon? So that for me is not carrying the message. Carrying the message is 
I did one thing which really helped him, which was I shared what another member who had been through something like he had been through had shared with me. And I I got permission to do that. I spoke out this other person's story with no names or anything like that. And it really helped him. And he actually then passed that story on to his dad and they both took their foot, their feet off the accelerator for a while. And it seemed to have an effect. So carrying the message can also mean, yeah, I might tell an anecdote or a story that might resonate with somebody and who knows what effect it could have. So yeah, it takes many forms and you're right. It's not just about sponsorship. Sponsorship is the big ticket thing that we assume is what Step 12 is about. Maybe also because the other program encourages people, I think, to sponsor a lot more readily and actively and soon (laughs) for understandable reasons. But it's a little different for us. And for me, I have to tread very carefully with volunteering myself for things. (laughs) Yes, that too. Definitely that too. I was just Mm. thinking as you were talking about some of the ways in which I have carried pieces of the program to mostly members of my family who are not in the program. I remember having a conversation with one of my kids. I say kids, they're 32 years old. They're still my kids, right? I don't even remember exactly what it was about, but just taking the learnings that I had, let's say it was about forgiveness. And the way I understand forgiveness now is not saying it was okay what you did, but saying I'm not going to let that thing you did continue to take my energy. It happened. I'm over it. I'm going to move on. I'm probably going to set some boundaries to help ensure that thing doesn't happen again. Something like that and just expressing it without the program frame. And he was like, oh, okay, I see that. I guess I could give that a try. I don't always have to take the whole program to carry that message. And maybe if I carry enough pieces of the message, then the question comes back, how do you know this stuff? Like, where did you learn this? I learned it in the rooms of Al-Anon. Absolutely. I think I said to my mom a while ago now, expectations of premeditated resentments. (laughs) And she's like, that's great. (laughs) She loved it. She's like, oh my gosh, that is so true. But if you said, what I learned in Helenon is, <laughs> right? okay, switch off, yeah. <laughs> not listening. Exactly. What about practicing these principles in all your affairs? And we've touched on bits of that, but what does it mean for you to practice these principles in all your affairs? And what are the principles? What are we talking about here? Oh my God, that is always the question, isn't it? What are these principles? <laughs> I'm actually going to go back to the AA Big Book, because in the paragraph that I quoted before, it says, do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. And that sentence immediately follows the 12 steps. So it's like, okay, that's one possible definition of these principles is doing the things in the steps. I like to take it a little broader than that. For me, it's practicing the tools that I've learned It's practicing the new way of being that came out of, in many cases, working the steps. You know, in particular, I had a step six meeting this morning and expressed in my share that step six for me is where the actual recovery part starts. There was recovery earlier, but when I look at the steps, 
Step six is where I start initiating change. I have changed the way in which I act. Like being late for things, being habitually late for things is something that I used to do. If I'm late for something now, I don't feel good about it. I used to feel justified in being late and I just don't anymore. That's part of it is I have learned new ways of being. I've learned about setting boundaries. I've learned about not having expectations on other people. I've learned to think before I open my mouth. All those things and all those little slogans like just for today, one one day at a time, do the next right thing, which is not an Al-Anon slogan, but it's something I hear a lot. I can take those and I can take them out of the recovery context and I can use them in the rest of my life. Step 10, darn it, you know, <laughs> when I was wrong, promptly admitted, that has made my life so much easier. Yeah. Learning to practice that principle, learning to practice that principle in all my affairs made my life so much easier. If you go back and listen to the previous 300 and some odd podcast episodes in the our lives in recovery section of the podcast, you will hear <laughs> lots of times when I used step 10 to keep my side of the street clean, to, to not have to carry something forever. Yeah. So those are some examples of practicing these principles in all my affairs. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, I think of it in a very broad sense of, can I use Al-Anon in my life to be better for myself and better for others? When you said thinking before you open your mouth, you know, look, that's a huge one for me. I'm still absolutely not perfect at it. That's going to be a lifelong job for me working on that because, well, two reasons. One, I come from a culture where interrupting is actually culturally normal. It happened at home all the time. It still happened. I'm staying with my mum at the moment and I'm reminded really starkly when I'm in that environment, oh, yeah, this is where I learned this from. I think a lot of it comes from nervousness was the way that I learned how to channel nerves or social anxieties. I used to be the opposite. I used to never talk at all when I was younger, really young. I was so shy and so nonverbal outside the home context that my first school teacher assumed I didn't speak any English because I had parents with a foreign accent. So they just thought, oh, I guess she's she's an immigrant child. She doesn't speak any English. And they put me into English as a second language classes. And my English was already completely fine at that point. I came home once and I said, oh, in ESL today. And my mom was like, excuse me, <laughs> why are you in English as a second language class? And I was like, I don't know, Miss So-and-so put me there. The next day she went to the school and interrogated the teacher and the teacher was like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. But Ensta really never says anything. Over time, I learned that confident people talk a lot. I think I got that message somewhere and I started to learn how to do that. Probably instead of a strategy of dealing with the actual anxieties, I just dealt with the anxieties in a different way, but I still had them. In various social informal contexts, I would just be the one dominating the conversation because I was afraid of silences. I was afraid of awkward gaps. I was uncomfortable when things weren't flowing and ongoing to the point that I had partners who would call me out on the fact that I would really do that in a way that was, I don't know, off-putting for them. It was both that and that I was an interrupter, which I guess, I'd, yeah, as I said, I'd learned at home. That stuff is really tricky because when I do have that nervousness now, 
Instead, I try to actually bring my higher power into the situation and just learn to be comfortable in my discomfort, listen to what other people are saying, pause. The Al-Anon pause really helped me with that. Actually, something you shared a long time ago when I was listening to the podcast, which was about, do I have to say it? The general principle was, I actually don't need to be the one to say anything at this moment. Yeah. Does this thing need to be said at all? That's the initial question. Yeah. Does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said by me now? I love that. That's so helpful for me. Because if I ask those three questions, frequently the answer will be no. So that's been a big one. I grew up in a family of interrupters. Also, my wife did not. She would tell me, when we go visit your family, I can't get a word in. Yeah. Very familiar statement, that one. (laughs) At work, I think, is a place where I still have some trouble with that, which isn't going to be a problem very much longer because I'm planning to retire this year sometime. I haven't said when yet, but it's getting closer. I've been working for the same organization for over 25 years now. I helped build the product from the beginning. So I do have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge. I have a colleague who calls me out on this as I'm in the process of transitioning leadership to another person. The guy on the team, we call them Agile Coach. He'll call me out. He'll say, you really should let this other guy speak first because he's supposed to be taking it over. And as long as you keep stomping on him, he's going to feel like I'm not letting go, which is, you know, to some extent true. And so I'm becoming more cognizant of that. And I officially stepped back from the role of the product owner for that team around the end of last year. When we're in planning meetings, he's running it and I'm keeping myself on mute unless I I have something that needs to be said and it needs to be said by me and it needs to be said by me now. And I know I've talked about that particular tool. It's so helpful in Zoom meetings. It's a lot harder to do in person that if I keep myself on mute, I have to take an intentional action before I can speak. Yeah. And it gives me that pause. It gives me that momentary pause because I have to go find the mute button. Absolutely. Yeah. Work meetings. I know I've shared this with you in previous recordings that we've done. Gosh, I've had to really learn the basic Al-Anon tool of keeping my mouth shut in those contexts. And I don't have to have an opinion about everything. Or rather, if I have an opinion about everything, (laughs) not everybody has to hear that opinion about everything. And hey, who knows, I might even learn something if I keep my mouth shut for a while. Generally, the slogan, keep an open mind, has been really helpful in those contexts because usually the reason I feel the drive to say something is because I am unsatisfied with a situation in a work context or a piece of advice or an instruction from five layers of management above me that I have no ability to communicate with. And I just want to say my bit to the people I'm in the meeting with and be like, we should be doing X or Y rather than A or B. But I've sort of made a pact with myself, which is, why don't you be the last one to speak? (laughs) And often when I do that, and I've already heard everybody else take their turn to speak, or those who have chosen to, because there are some people who just choose not to, which I also watch and try to learn from sometimes. Sometimes I get to the end of the meeting and I think, actually, this is not a thing I need to say at this point because either someone else has already said it or something close enough to it, or we got through what we needed to get through. 
that directly relates to this meeting's agenda and me introducing any other elements to it is actually just going to make the meeting go longer, which I also don't want. (laughs) So there's lots of positive byproducts of not being the one to open my mouth at certain times in those work contexts, apart from which it teaches me valuable lessons about what it means to properly engage with people, to be in relationship with other people in interactions and to to be present but not have to stake my territory while I'm being present. I think some of these techniques I learned in a context where I was the only woman and I was also a young woman compared with older, more experienced men in the field that I was starting to work in. I felt that I had something to prove. And the way that I dealt with that was to try to not dominate them, but meet them where they were, which sometimes meant being just as loud, just as verbal, just as confident, maybe just as arrogant, I don't know, to try to show that I was on their level. It's taken a lot of work in inventorying for me to admit and realize that that I still have something to prove affects how I behave and frequently is the reason for a lot of my Al-Anon defects. It's very much about proving myself to other people or to myself or I guess it all comes back for me to self-worth, the question of self-worth. I'm not satisfied that I'm good enough as I am, as I already present in the world, therefore I have to do all these other controlling and manipulating intervention tactics to ensure, to manage people's impression of me. And that that includes, for example, I've just completed a really long project that has taken me five years of long periods of not doing it and then short bursts of doing it and long periods of not doing it. And I didn't think I would ever finish it, but I did actually finally finish it. I realized that a lot of the struggle I had in the periods where I was procrastinating because of perfectionism and paralysis was because I was obsessed with the idea that what I was going to produce was not going to be received well or in the way that I wanted it to be received by the people who were overseeing the process, a couple of whom were my former supervisors. So there was already a sort of power relationship there that I was trying to, now that I'm not under their supervision, I want to show them. I want to show them X, Y, or Z. I want to show them I can do this. I want to prove that I'm... I had some idea in my head that they thought I was stupid or whatever it was that was really irrational. And it might have been triggered by something. I don't know. But the point is I had this idea that I just believed and stuck with and informed how I behaved and my relationship to this project, which was for me. Like I was doing this project for me, not for them. And yet it became about them. And it became about this external validation. So for me, practicing the Al-Anon principles, stop making this project my higher power, number one. Stop making those people my higher power because that's what I was doing. I was absolutely making them my higher power. And I had no idea what they actually thought of me or my work. Like none of this was based on reality. It was based on stories I was telling myself. Just accepting and surrendering to the fact that whatever I do, this is not going to be perfect. Like... It doesn't matter. Even if it's great, it's still not going to be perfect. (laughs) So like, what is it that I'm aiming for here? And what am I trying to prove and to whom and why? And actually, if that's based on fiction or if it's based on stories I'm telling myself, can I let those go so I can just get this thing done? And eventually I just did it and it felt like a miracle. 
I really, really doubt that without this program or something like this program, I would have been able to see it through because there were several moments through the process over the five years where I was like, this is not going to happen. I just can't do it. Like I really believed I was not going to finish. And when I finished and I told my sponsor that I finished, she, I mean, I could see she was really emotional because she knew I had been carrying this monster thing that I had made my higher power for so long by doing the step work, working the program, working on myself, working on my sense of self-worth and giving all of that what was really nonsense to my higher power, I had this moment of, oh, no, I can do this thing. I can do it and it's not going to be perfect and that's okay. That's okay. And that was the only thing that helped me finish and I'm so proud of it. It's not perfect, but I'm still proud of it. That is a program miracle for me. For me, that's what it means to practice these principles in all my affairs. I had a question here that I wrote about what if there were no alcoholics or no alcohol in any of my affairs anymore, right? Well, I would still find it incredibly useful, for example, through that context that I just described to to practice those principles because I would control and manipulate anything given the opportunity because that's my default. That's Mm -hmm. what I learned. It's what I'll keep doing (laughs) given the opportunity. Yeah, this program really helps me let go of those things a day at a time. Yeah, that question about what if it's not alcohol or alcoholics. I think I told the story just last episode about when my son ended up in a psych hospital. Not alcohol, not drugs, just normal 20-year-old brain fart, something, I don't know. And I was able to take the tools that I had learned in living with active alcoholism to apparently do the right thing, whatever, to support him in working through the consequences of his actions that had landed him there in the first place. Loving detachment, not enabling acceptance of things I cannot control, knowing the things that I could do something. Just those basic things apply in in all kinds of other places in my life, and particularly with other members of my family, with my children when they were going through crises of some sort, with my parents as they moved into the last years of their life. And I didn't want that to happen. They both had some kind of dementia, and there's a lot of behaviors in dementia that are very reminiscent of behaviors in active alcoholism. And I could get triggered by those behaviors, but I could recognize that I was getting triggered and I could use the same principles, the same tools. I could go to an Al-Anon meeting when I was visiting them, and I did for years. Always Friday noon, we were going to a meeting when we were visiting them. I was so grateful that I learned how to detach with love from the behaviors that the disease brought on, still loving them while being totally pissed off, annoyed, afraid because of the behaviors. Yeah, that that's another way in which I, I took these sort of fuzzy principles, but I was I was so grateful to to have them work my way through to be able to be with them in the way that it was possible to be with them in that time, which was not the way that I wanted 
<laughs> was not the way that I had been with them for the previous 60 years or something of my life. But I didn't have to put up a wall or I didn't have to suffer in silence because I had learned these principles. I had learned these tools and I was able to pick them up and use them. Very so, powerful. yeah, there was no alcohol there. Nope. But there was definitely behavior. Yep. Yep. And it's everywhere. It's hard to avoid behavior. <laughs> it's hard to avoid behavior. Oh, my goodness. If everybody would just do the things that, that I think they should do, life would be so much easier for me. And it doesn't happen. It looks like you've got a reading or two to close with. Yeah. So again, Odat, this time from December 14, it's a today's reminder. It is not only the newcomer who benefits from having one particular person to look to for guidance. Even the old timer in the program may find that another member with different and perhaps better insights can be of immense help. As one member put it, answers came not from books, but from mutual caring and thinking out loud with someone you felt comfortable with. And another quote is, I would strongly recommend sponsorship to anyone in Al-Anon. It opens a whole new area of mind and heart. It's a big job and you have to grow in it. So that's for the person who maybe never feels ready for sponsorship, but perhaps there are things holding them back. And it's a sort of gentle encouragement, I think, which is probably also quite important for a lot of people, those who think they have to do it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. If I can do a, just a little bit of digging into words here. It's a big job, and you have to grow in it. It doesn't say you have to grow into it. Right. Which has, for me, a different feeling. Like, grow into it is, no, I have to grow before I can do the job. And it's not what this is saying. It's saying, yes, it's a big job, and you can grow in it. You can pick it up when you think you're not ready, and you will grow as you're doing it. That's a, a, another way that, that I might interpret that. That just those two little words that make it feel so different to me. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, exactly. Because it means I don't have to be a perfect, fully formed sponsor when I go into that process, which is extremely important. <laughs> how, can, how can we be, right? I, I remember the first time I had a sponsee who wanted to do step five with me, and I had to go to my sponsor and say, what do I do? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's too big. And then the thought for the day from Hope for Today, January 3, which I really like, is Al-Anon is helping me to navigate life with ease, dignity, and hope. That's where I put the emphasis. And then today I will share my hope with others. So yeah, that's the 12 steps. Like Al-Anon gave me a spiritual awakening. Today I will share that hope that others could have that spiritual awakening. I think that's a really nice little tight summary of step 12. Thank you. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. I ask you to pick songs. You came through. What do we have first? Uh, the first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website on the recovery.show slash 392, is Smokey Robinson and the Miracles with You've Really Got a Hold on Me. I don't know why, but I decided I was going to do like a 60s, 70s, and 80s theme for the songs this time. I have no idea what possessed me to do that. It was just like a moment of inspiration. For me, the song talks to my experience of Al-Anon-ism as being the disease of relationships, of, of being 
in the grip of someone's behaviors, if we want to call them that, or whether it's alcoholism or addiction or whatever it is that's making us obsess about them, what they're doing and how and the fact that we like structure our lives around them. And there's also an element of this that's attraction to chaos and drama. There have been moments in my life and relationships where I've been treated badly, but I have continued to come back for more despite myself. So some of the lyrics are, I don't like you, but I love you. Seems that I'm always thinking of you. Oh, 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 you treat me badly. I love you madly. You really got a hold on me. You really got a hold on me. You really got a hold on me. <laughs> you really got a hold, baby. I don't want you, but I need you. Don't want to kiss you, but I need you. Oh, 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 you do me wrong now. My love is strong now. You really got a hold on me. Wow. I don't think I ever really looked at the words. <laughs> right? Wow. Maybe not until recently. Yeah. Yeah. this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? It's been a little while. The episode that I just recently published, I actually recorded it on Christmas morning before anybody was awake. I did want to talk about Christmas. Christmas is a holiday where there are expectations. There are things that are supposed to happen. This year, not everything went the way that we had planned. First thing is both of our children are now living in other cities, both to the east of us, which becomes relevant in a moment, and they were going to come for Christmas. Yay! In particular, our son, who moved away in August, we're still kind of grieving not having at least one of the kids nearby that we can see frequently. Okay, it happens. So they're both coming for Christmas. And then this... Snowmageddon is predicted. It's going to dump all kinds of snow, and it's going to be cold, and it's going to be windy, and travel's going to be awful. Wait, is Snowmageddon a thing? <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> it's a term that shows up in the weather reporting because they, they just want to, they've got to pump it up. Yeah, it's Snowmageddon. Hilarious. And I'll tell you what, some parts of the country did get a Snowmageddon. In fact, a city that's between where both of our children live and us got over 48 inches of snow in two days. People's That's roofs <laughs> collapsed. People died because oh. they got stuck or because their building collapsed and the power went out and the roads were closed. There was like a no drive order in effect until they could get the roads cleared. And the main highway between both our kids and us goes right through that city. So they're like, okay, we're going to leave early so we can get to you before the storm. Okay, adaptability is a wonderful thing. Acceptance of, oh, I have to change my plans is great. And then the one kid before leaving, and I guess maybe wasn't feeling completely well, did a COVID test and came it positive. So, yeah, so we didn't have that kid for Christmas. But a week later is my wife's birthday, New Year's Eve. She's planning a big party because she turned 65. So we were very hopeful that the kid who had COVID on Christmas would be negative in time to, to come for that, which indeed happened. But he had to take a longer route, a southern route that avoided the city that was still shut down from this storm that had happened before Christmas. And because he was still fatigued, because that is, in my experience, at least one of the things that hangs on after 
becoming clearer of COVID. I was still fatigued for a couple of weeks after, after mine. It took two days to come what is normally a one-day drive. Again, accepting the reality of what is and adapting. My sister-in-law was coming up for the party from Texas, and the airline that she had booked tickets on just completely went into chaos with this storm, canceled oh, yeah. thousands of flights, including my sister-in-law's flight. So we got her a ticket on another airline that cost twice as much, and she was able to come. One of the other people who was going to come from Texas did not. But everything went fine. We didn't flake out over all this stuff that didn't go according to our plans. And I mentioned the party. This was a big thing for my wife, and she was putting a lot of energy into it. Practicing the principles of the program and all my affairs meant saying yes when what I was thinking was maybe this is kind of over the top. Do we really need to do all these things? Do we really need to have all these different kinds of food? But it was her party, and she was stressing major over it already. I didn't need to add stress. So I say, yes, I can do that. Yes, I will make a cake. Yes. <laughs> nice. She had somebody lined up to cater it. That person had some illness in her family and was unable to cater it. And so then we were going to get a local restaurant to do some catering. They weren't doing any catering until January. <laughs> I was like, just, okay, no, okay, what's plan B, what's plan C, what's plan The party was great. A lot of people were there. The food was good. A lot of food got eaten. A lot of food didn't get eaten. We're still eating leftovers. Awesome. Love leftovers. <laughs> the decorations were beautiful. It went well, and I didn't put any obstacles in the way of it. There was no resentments afterwards about you didn't want to do this thing or whatever. And we all had a good time. So a lot about practicing these principles in my affairs around plans that didn't go quite the way we meant them to, wanted them to, but we made adaptations and letting her have the party she wanted to have instead of the party I thought she could have. Yeah. So those are the things that, that, that come to my mind right now about practicing these principles in my life. No, that's great. And I love that you were able to celebrate the wins. I think yes. that's a really beautiful aspect of what Alanon teaches me. Like my perspective on disasters can really inform my experience of those disasters. And of course, I'm not minimizing the fact that it was a genuine disaster for some people. There's levels of <laughs> importance yeah. about that, right? How important is it? That's a great story. For me, my life in recovery at the moment, I'm having lots of opportunities to practice these principles in all my affairs. I'm currently visiting my mother in a different city, in a different state to where I regularly live. The last few times I've visited her, I stayed by myself in other accommodation because I had to stay for a little bit longer. And I know I've learned that the amount of time that I can stay with my mother before we start to get on each other's nerves is limited. So I have just learned to to act on that knowledge without dramatizing it or making it something that I need to be stressed about or at least adding stress to it. But this time I'm only staying for a week and that's about my limit. And I thought, no, I probably could save the money this time. So I will stay with her. But also I've removed other stresses that might sometimes affect my ability to have a good time with her, which 
sometimes I'm trying to balance work while I stay here. And that is very difficult for me. It is not a conducive work environment. When I have tried to do that, I have usually ended up quite frustrated. So this time I thought, no, I will book this trip when I actually can take leave from work and I will be fully present to the extent that I can be. It has really paid off. For the most part, I've had a really nice time with her. There are things about her behavior that are very, they press all my buttons. In many respects, she installed my buttons. And sometimes I have to go through a period of adjustment or readjustment where we get on each other's nerves initially because we're not used to coexisting, but then we enter into a kind of groove. And I know I've described that before with relation to staying with my partner when we visit each other because we're long distance. I think as a person who now lives alone, that's just a reality for having to share a space with other people. I do things the way I want to do them when I'm on my own, and I don't have to compromise those when I'm not living with other people. And as soon as I have to live with other people, that has to change. So that's just a reality that I'm learning to adapt to. One of the things that I've learned as well with my mother that really helps me is This is a real Al-Anon lesson for me, and it's been a major source of strength. I can detach with my feet if things get really difficult. I did that the other day because she did something that was a source of, I'm going to say, anticipatory stress and anxiety before I even came here, which was she commented on my body weight. She has always done that in some way. But at the moment, I have my own challenging relationship to body image and body weight and fitness or lack of fitness or what I'm not doing to look after myself and all of these sorts of things because of the realities of how my life works at the moment. So hearing it from the person who I know has her own difficult relationship with her body image and body weight and who probably was the person who initially introduced the idea that I should be careful and controlled in what I eat and things like that in the first place. It was really hard for me. And lo and behold, the very first morning after I arrived, she said something and she did it in an underhanded and I think she thought she wasn't saying it, but I recognize these kinds of manipulations because I learned how to do them too (laughs) with my loved ones. So it was really clear what was happening. And I could have gotten really reactive and started a conflict in response to that. And probably a not too long ago version of me would have done that because it is really uncomfortable and unpleasant to have this thing that I already feel I'm in a difficult relationship with being brought to my attention from somebody else who I really love and whose opinion I care about. But instead, I I didn't do that. I wasn't reactive. And I just, I paused. And in my sort of spiritual pause, I was guided to going out of the apartment for a while and just being on my own. I'm so grateful for being an able-bodied adult that doesn't have to explain or justify that I can come and go as I please. And I used that. What I realized was each day that I have with my mother, I am better and more loving and able to be more present and in relationship with her if I actually take a couple of hours to myself every day. So I've been doing that since that first morning. I've just made it a habit 
of going out for whatever reason and taking my things with me for a couple of hours and going to visit some of my favorite spots around where I grew up and just being on my own. Then I'm able to go back when I feel ready to go back and be with her and then things go great for the rest of the day. Whereas in the past, I would have seen that as I'm not being a good daughter because I'm being absent and I feel bad because she's expecting me to be there. And this is me, of course, making assumptions about what she's expecting. She's expecting me to be there. She's going to give me the guilt treatment. I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to have to explain myself, excuses, and so on. At this point, I'm really good at just stating what I need and doing it. And in a sense, I feel like by doing that, she has also learned not to question what I say I need and I'm going to do. In that sense, she's starting to treat me more like an adult, which is the kind of relationship I've always wanted to have with her, but which has been difficult because I think sometimes she forgets I'm not 17 anymore, you know? Mm. She wants to mother me forever, and that's fine. I've been told by anyone who's a parent that drive is not something that is readily discarded. She had to ask me how old I was on this trip because at a certain point she lost track of my age and my brother's age, which is totally fair enough. And I'm also starting to notice things like she's starting to be affected by her age in ways, by physically and her cognitive faculties are not what they were. You know, witnessing the aging process is simultaneously difficult, but also actually helping me be more patient and more compassionate in how I interact with her and not go back to that default teenage reactiveness. That It's funny because I think if I don't want to be treated like a 17-year-old, I also shouldn't behave like one. (laughs) It goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. So that's a big one. And then the other thing is that I'm about to become an aunt in a few months for the first time. And the situation around which my brother and his partner are going to have this child is extremely complex and very challenging in many respects. There's the happy side to it, of course. There's going to be a new child, hopefully, if all goes well, brought into the world. I'm thrilled to have, I think, what's going to be a nephew. But the situation in which they live is very difficult and It is hard not to project and not to be very concerned about the future of this unborn baby. Mm -hmm. It is difficult for me. So there's a lot of letting go and letting God in that reality. And I'm noticing my mother as the forthcoming grandmother. It'll be her first time being a grandmother, being very stressed and upset by various aspects of how this is unfolding. My first instinct is to want to take her inventory and essentially tell her that she can't control all these things. And I actually did a little bit of that on the first day that we talked about it. And then I recognized that, number one, that's actually me controlling. And number two, that's gossip because we're talking about people who aren't there. I think that while that principle might sound a little, I don't know, puritanical, as a general guide, it's very helpful for me to avoid falling into the trap of going down that spiral of talking about my brother with my mother about all the things that she's stressed about while he's not actually in the room and can't have a say in any of that conversation. So a lot of let go, let God, I can have hope and I can give my prayers to them and to this unborn child, but that's the rest is up to their higher powers. So that for me is how I'm using recovery in my life at the minute. Yeah. It'd be big things. Big things. Wow. Yeah. And congratulations. Thank you. Looking forward, I was listening to a podcast called Adult Child, 
for her end of the year episode, she asked members of her Patreon group, what valuable lesson did you learn in 2022? And I thought, oh, that is a great question. So I'm asking, what valuable lesson did you learn in 2022? That's your prompt. You can join our conversation. You can leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your contribution. And Esther, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. That's plus one if you're outside the US or Canada, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of Step 12 or any of our upcoming topics, including what valuable lesson did you learn in 2022? If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you'd like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? That would be our website, which is, as you may have guessed, it's therecovery.show, which has all the information about The Recovery Show. We have notes for each episode. That's primarily what we have is notes for each episode, wherein we might have links to the books that we read from, videos for the music, and there are also, in a sidebar, some links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we have found helpful, useful, valuable, or interesting. And now we're at song number two. What you got for us? Yes. So I think we're into the 70s of the 60s, 70s, and 80s selection. (laughs) And I chose a George Harrison song, All Things Must Pass, which I feel is quite self-explanatory in the title, but it's very much the Al-Anon tool that really served me well in the initial periods of crisis where I first entered the rooms and just needed to kind of survive the day-to-day. So very much This Too Shall Pass, which is one of my favorite slogans and I have learned since then that this applies not only to the difficult times, but also to the good times, which I also have to acknowledge and accept will pass. So some lyrics that I really like are, sunset doesn't last all evening. A mind can blow those clouds away. After all this, my love is up and must be leaving. It's not always going to be this gray. All things must pass. All things must pass away. Now the darkness only stays the night time. In the morning it will fade away. Daylight is good at arriving at the right time. It's not always going to be this grey. All things must pass. All things must pass away. I always love hearing from you. And here's some things that you sent me recently. Kate sent a poem that she said, closely reflected my experience in Elanon. The poem is titled Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. It is copyright Portia Nelson from There's a Hole in My Sidewalk, The Romance of Self-Discovery. Here's the poem. One, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Two, 
I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I still don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in the same place. It isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's habit. It's my fault. I know where I am. I get out immediately. 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. 5. I walk down a different street. Thank you, Kate, for sending that. It does definitely reflect some of my life before and in recovery. Yeah. The listener who signed herself Sarge's wife left a comment on episode 384, Leaning into Faith, that I did with Kathy H. She writes, Thank you for this podcast, Spencer and Kathy. I have heard it called future tripping, in where I pictured my daughter dying, me grieving, planning a funeral. It was awful. I had to turn my fears over to my higher power or lose my sanity. I like the fork in the road analogy. I will picture that now when I find myself in fear and choose to trust my higher power. I pray daily and have turned my daughter over to God's care. I feel such a relief. If it's not the outcome a mother would want for her daughter, that would be tough. However, I know God will see me through, along with my sponsor and my Al-Anon family. I am grateful for your show. Thank you for your comment. I did forward that to Kathy. Ray writes on our sponsorship episode number 25. That was a while ago. I just ran across this and was wondering, since it's been a minute, would you be willing to do a refresher episode on sponsorship? Might be interesting to hear how your views on this topic have changed. Thanks. Brilliant idea, Ray. Be looking for a co-host or hosts to talk about sponsorship in a new episode. That'd be great. Leela says, hello, Spencer. Happy New Year. I've been in the Al-Anon recovery program for three years now. Started right at the start of the pandemic. I've been listening to your podcast roughly the same time. I've learned so much through meetings and your podcast. I have a topic suggestion if you haven't done for this one. The Just for Today bookmark with seven or I think nine maybe small suggestions that can be practiced every day. This one can be kept in a pocket or wallet just like slogans and are simple things we can try including in our everyday lives. I found them so handy in times of confusion and anger, along with the slogans. Regards, Leela. Thanks, Leela, for that idea. I definitely have at least one copy of that bookmark hanging out in various recovery books. Also, the Just for Tonight bookmark, which, to coin a phrase, the two of them will bookmark your day at the two ends. Yeah. Page comments on episode number 391, The Power of Stories. You read a share from a gentleman who was interested and willing to be part of a parent panel if you did one. This interests me as well. I'm fairly new to Al-Anon, but I'm not new to living with addiction. I've only recently begun my step work with my sponsor, but already the changes in my own life are paramount. The way that I move through the world is more steady, peaceful, and loving. I have my program and the folks in the meeting rooms I walk into every day to thank. I was so scared of what my son was going to do every day before Al-Anon. Now I've learned to let it go and focus on myself today. Your podcast has been the meeting for me when there is no meeting for me to go to. Thank you for your experience, strength, and hope. Paige. I've done a number of episodes with uh, parents in various situations over the years. The Parents Roundtable episode was number 22, so it has been a minute. Definitely. 
Louise has a short note. She says, I was just emailing about a suggestion for future topics. I wondered if you could talk about living with an alcoholic alongside their cancer treatment. Best wishes, Louise. Thanks for writing, Louise. That's a very focused topic, and sometimes focus is good. I certainly don't have that experience, so I would have to lean on a guest who has gone through that or is going through that and would like to share their own experience, strength, and hope. Please write me if that's you. Laurel sent us a voice memo in which she refers to a story that she sent me about the worst Christmas ever that's in quotes. I'm hoping to feature that story in a future episode. Her voice memo here stands also alone as a share about Al-Anon recovery. Hi, Spencer. It's Laurel. I'm calling back to let you know that I had another kind of insight about the story I sent you by email after the episode about stories and the importance of sharing our stories. I realized that part of the context for the terrible, awful, no good, worst Christmas ever that I that I shared with you was that I was really triggered by the holidays this year. And I knew that the day I put my Christmas tree up, I walked around my house mad all day, having arguments in my head with my alcoholic that I hadn't had in months. Al-Anon really had brought me to more serenity than that. But I think I was spending a lot of time thinking about how sad it made me that our kids wouldn't spend Christmas with both of us. This year they were with me, next year they'll be with her. And I was actually experiencing a lot of empathy and compassion for her and how much I thought it sucked that she wouldn't be with our boys at Christmas. And then I was mad at myself for feeling that way and caught in this loop of, well, I guess you shouldn't have blown up our family and walked away then. And I was living in the past. I was watching myself do it, but I couldn't pull myself out of it. And I'm forgiving myself for that because it was the first year. But I was watching it happen and thinking about what it meant that these resentments were back, reminding myself that every day is a good day to go back to step one. But in a meeting, I chaired my home group meeting last week, and I chose the topic of forgiveness because it has occurred to me that I need to figure out how to forgive both myself and my alcoholic for the situation we find ourselves in in order to move on and let go of these resentments. Listening to this room full of people, there are people in my home group with 40 years in Al-Anon and people who joined yesterday. It's so amazing. And listening to all these shares really helped me to realize that part of the reason I put myself in the position I did over the holidays was because I'd been living in the past. I'd been focused on the hurt and the anger. And so I forgot to take care of myself. I forgot to think about the situation I was going into. I forgot to ask questions. I forgot to be mindful. I forgot to prioritize self-care. And while parts of that situation were things I couldn't anticipate, I do think I did really well given the challenges. And I used my tools and I got through it and I laughed about it. But I think I might have made different choices in the first place if I hadn't been stuck back in my resentments. So I don't know how to give them up. I hope that for the rest of my life, I'm not going to walk around mad for the whole month of December. But I've just been asking my higher power to make me willing 
to forgive and to make me willing to give up my self-righteous anger and resentment. And I don't think I would have had that realization if I hadn't gone to that meeting and asked for help with forgiveness by making that the topic that week. So that's how I'm living Al-Anon in my life this week. And thanks so much for continuing to do the recovery show. And thanks so much to the rest of the recovery show audience and the Al-Anon community worldwide. We're not alone. And that's the most comforting thing some days. Thank you, Laurel, for sharing that. And I hope to get your worst Christmas ever story recorded sometime soon because it's quite the story, but way too long to put here. In the previous episode, number 391, Holly signed her email with the acronym LIF. I wondered what it meant, and she responded that for her, LIF is love in the fellowship, which sounds like an excellent way to sign an email. I also got an email from Clara who suggested that LIF could mean life is fantastic, and I think that is also something that can apply in our recovery. I like both of them. Thank you both. Lilia left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. My name is Lilia Lima. I want to thank you a lot for doing this podcast. It has helped me to keep my path, my journey in a good direction. So thank you very much. I'm going to maybe write an email to tell you a little bit about my story. And I just want to tell you that I heard a podcast that I don't remember the number about other kinds of program for recovery. And since then, I joined a refugee recovery. I never drop Al-Anon. I'm still doing Al-Anon, but I really like the refugee recovery. I feel that it's more my peeps. I don't know how can I say that. So thank you lots for your help for doing that. I appreciate. Thank you, Lilia, for sharing that. Lilia mentioned Refuge Recovery, which Josh R. talked about in episode number 323, which was titled Recovery Dharma. Esther, thank you so much for coming on and leading me in this conversation about Step 12. It was actually a, was your idea, and you put together all the materials for it, and all I had to do was show up and talk. So that's great. <laughs> so thank You're you welcome. so much. And let's go out with our closing song. You bet. Our last song selection, we're in the 1980s now, is If I Could Turn Back Time by Cher, which you can listen to at therecovery.show slash 392. For me, I learned in Al-Anon that I spend a lot of energy dwelling on the past and wishing that I could turn back time in a lot of interactions and relationships and especially in how I was around active alcoholism when it came into my life with my partner. Now I'm learning that instead of dwelling on those things, I can actually make amends. I don't have to turn back time. I can do actions that help me to be, I suppose, relieved of those feelings and those regrets. And some lyrics that I like from it are, if I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that have hurt you and you'd stay. I don't know why I did the things I did. I don't know why I said the things I said. Pride's like a knife. It can cut deep inside. 
Words are like weapons they wound sometimes. I didn't really mean to hurt you. I didn't want to see you go. I know I made you cry, but baby. And then it goes back to the the chorus. That particular part of the chorus is, if I could reach the stars, I'd give them all to you. Then you'd love me, love me like you used to do if I could turn back time. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.